0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Hi, everybody. I was saying to Wynne earlier that I'm, it's been really interesting looking at uh, my the mind's fascination with aging and uh, just partly like what Robert and others were saying, the effect of how what people project onto me being, in, you know, getting closer maybe, or maybe actually being an older person. And, uh, and then like trying it on as an identity. And I noticed like I have more confidence and uh, comfort fumbling around and kind of not being as nimble with words or memory or bodily stuff. And it's sort of like, playing with that identity, oh, this is, I guess this is okay because I'm in that category of being an older person and I get to be that sort of, at least in moments, that fumbly, you know, oh, isn't he sweet? (laughs)
1: Let's
0: see. So uh, this next part, for 40 minutes or so, I want to talk a little bit about the teachings from the Buddhists, um, you know, as much as we can tell this evidently, this wise person who had come to understand a lot about the mind, in a way, deep enough understanding his mind, deep enough that um, there was some some of these universal aspects that when we look in a more subtle, more deep way, we see the same movement, same aspects of the mind, how the mind gets tight, how the mind congeals and holds, looking for safety where maybe there isn't ultimately any safety. Right? And so identity is one of these places. Fixed views is another way we talk about it in the tradition. How the mind uses stories, views, identity, concepts of self, concepts of me and you, Why? I mean, one of the things we can tell immediately from the the way Shelley opened the workshop is there's no way as human beings in community, there's no way for us to function without identity, without story, of being from Minnesota or being a white person or being, you know, whatever gender, however we understand our gender, our sexual orientation, right? These... These identities, these stories, these views, these ideas, they have impact. Not just personally, my heart, my identities are meaningful to me. But as several people suggested, it's meaningful like the super in, like the meaning identities, what's being projected onto me, what I'm projecting onto you. Looking on the room, can you look at somebody? Without projecting identity or meaning or story onto them? I don't think so. <laughs> right? I mean, I think we can train ourselves when we're looking at a person to just be on the level of visual form, shape, color, right? But the the part of the mind, the activity of the mind we call perception. It's still happening. You know, when I look at Ellen over there, one of our leaders. You know, I can get to the point where I'm seeing the pinkness and the redness of the sweater and the shape, but I can't stop my mind from doing that work of perceiving, oh, that's Ellen. She's this, she's that, she's not this, she's not that, she fits in this category, not that category. One of the, you know, ancient ones in the community, you know, those sort of things, they just are there, Maybe sometimes they're really forefront of the mind's attention, maybe sometimes in the background. It's sort of like, uh, you know, around race and around class and around gender. We like sometimes to imagine we're beyond that, my mind is beyond that. But it isn't. All that cultural programming and maybe even some genetic programming is going to be activated. So part of what we're doing is we're just learning to acknowledge what gets activated, the stories that we're swimming with, living with, interacting with, projecting, receiving from each other, from our interactions. This is the soup we live in. And the interesting question is, does it have to be a problem? Having stories, having views, having identities, clearly, you know, and as we go on through the day, we'll be hearing from each other, clearly our identities have caused, our my own identities has, have been limiting and constricting and oppressive, the identities I carry, like not being good enough. Anybody have that identity? Right? It can be quite oppressive having that identity wherever that might show up in life. Or <laughs> Surprisingly, it's oppressive to have the identity, I'm, being, I'm better than you, I know more than you, I'm right. That's an oppressive identity too. Right? It's so much work to keep imagining that everybody else is wrong, or less than, right? And to massage the data to fit that view, that identity. So, it's like we can't li- live with and we can't live without identity. That's our predicament. And it really goes right to the heart of what the Buddha had to offer. I mean, there's been a lot of wisdom, you know, through the ages. And then people, you know, some people are able to get out of the box and add a whole new, let's say, layer, a whole new perspective of wisdom that then has some resonance. And now, some 2,600 years later, What is the particular resonance from the Buddhist teachings around view, around identity? Like, what was this person able to kind of bring forth about the nature of how our mind operates in the world that is of value for us? And I think it's really important to just name, you know, as that, whatever the Buddha came to understand and then articulated, and then got passed on. We have to understand that that passage through time, it wasn't perfect, right? So the Buddhist teachings got institutionalized in male-dominated institutions. That's just how it is. And so part of our work as people who are not interested in who's right or wrong, whose god is bigger than you know, the other gods, or whose idea is better than the other ideas, but actually interested in a more pragmatic way of addressing our suffering and the end of suffering, then we have to listen to these imperfect things that have been passed down, sort of streams of human wisdom that can only get passed down through culture and institutions imperfectly. But that doesn't mean that it's a bunch of trash, it just means we have to do our work of hearing it, listening understanding that it's limited because it got passed on by human beings with their fixed views and their cultural conditioning and their ways of, you know, the limitations of that. And then we have to sort of hear it and then work with it until it becomes real and useful, functional, pragmatic, illuminates our own experience in a way that we find really skillful. We can function more nimbly, more creatively, more kindly in our worlds, and our relationships, right? That's how we know. So I want to say that about some of these sort of traditional teachings that come from the Buddha, is like, don't blame the Buddha for them being limited. It was the only way to go from point A to point B, right? It would be one thing if we had somebody with really deep, deep wisdom here in front of us, you know, the, the transmission would be different. But we're doing this transmission through human institution, human culture. And so we have to step up and not immediately reject or immediately say it's right. But we have to work with it. Like, how does it illuminate my own experience? How what's useful? What might I leave on the shelf for later, perhaps? Who knows? What's immediately useful? What doesn't pass the smell test? and we leave it behind. The other point I wanted to make right at the beginning, too, is um, because it can... We hear it a lot, you know, the four of us up front, but probably you as well, in Buddhist circles, you know, we hear a lot about this as if there's a difference between our own well-being, taking care of our own suffering, and showing up because we care, and taking care of the suffering in the world. And this is like a really good place to look at identity. Because some of us may be identified with taking care of my own suffering, and in other moments in our lives, we might be identified with taking care of the world's suffering, or other people's suffering, feeling responsible, wanting to do our part. And what I would just encourage us, uh, all of us to have some humility that there's actually a difference. Why does there, why are we at times so sure there's a difference between, no, I'm doing my own work and that, oh, that's not the world's work, taking care of the world. Or I'm doing the, you know, I'm an activist, I'm taking care of the suffering in the world, but I'm neglecting my own well-being. And so just inviting us to keep open to the possibility that addressing my own well-being and addressing the well-being of the world, that maybe they can go hand in hand. And that, I think, would be really useful as we do this work around identity today, is not to presume that as I'm sort of unpacking this in my own experience, that I might also be learning how to show up in this world where there's so much injustice and suffering in a wiser way. That they can work hand in hand together. And then, in the the spirit of these teachings from the Buddha being pragmatic, you know, one thing we can just open to is, you know, just as a personal guideline in doing this work around identity or fixed view, being attached to a story, being attached to some idea of self, whether it's you as a self or me as a self is, and this really speaks to the encouragement we get a lot here at the center of this invitation to be embodied, to kind of show up. There's a body here because here in the heart of the moment, this body, heart, mind, right? If it hurts, this immediate experience, if it hurts, there's probably attachment. Right? There's probably some holding, some fixing, some entrenchment, right? Because that fixation, that I, that holding to identity—not the identity, but how the mind is relating to the identity, not the view, but how the mind is relating to view. There's if there's a crunch, a squeeze in the heart, then that's a sign like a, a loving sign, Hey honey, wake up! What's going on? Why does my heart... Why is there heaviness? Why is there tightness? Why does this moment feel so heavy? Because you know, our inst- maybe instinctual, but our habit is often somebody is doing something that's making my heart hurt, that's making my heart heavy, that's making me tight. You're making me tight. But the tightness is here, the, the weight is here, the contractions here. And do we really want to disempower ourselves by saying, the way the world is means I have to suffer, or the way this person is treating me means I have to suffer? No, I'm not saying there isn't a correlation between how the world treats me, how the world sees me, and how I feel. Clearly, there's a relationship. The question is a pragmatic question. What's a skillful, when we are hurting, when there is that psychic weight, emotional weight, heaviness, suffering, confusion, disorientation, oppression, it's a pragmatic question. What can I do that's helpful? What can I do that's helpful? If we could snap our fingers and make the external conditions different, that would be great. And to the degree we can not participate in what's happening in the what we call the wider world, external world, yeah, we should, out of compassion, participate skillfully. But my heart right now is hurting. How can I respond? And that's really one of the things we're going to be unpacking is this direct, responsibility we have for what is my mind doing right now around identity? How is it relating to identity? What is it doing with the story of identity? And is it helping, is it illuminating the present moment so I can be more skillful? Or is it distorting the present moment that causes me to be less skillful, causing myself another suffering? So it's really a pragmatic question. That's why... We can't tell somebody, you know, you're not doing identity right, you know, you're holding... I mean, maybe with a good friend, when we're really invited, we might mirror something back that we're sensing for them. But generally speaking, we have to discover for ourselves, what is my mind doing with identity right now, and is it helpful in a very direct, pragmatic sense? Is it helping me be a more skillful human being given what I have to navigate right now? How might I use identity, how might I use view more skillfully in this moment? You see how that takes us out of this uh, sort of wider realm of thinking about what identities are okay to use, what identities are not okay to use, where we're sort of trying to define it for everybody? But that doesn't mean we're not taking care of everybody by doing this personal work. This is how we take care of everybody. We do this personal work around our identities related to gender, related to class, related to race, related to, you know, how smart we think we are. Whether we tend because of habit to think of ourselves as being less smart, or tend because of habit to think of ourselves as being more smart or whatever those sort of spectrums of difference that we all have to navigate to sort of illuminate. And a lot of times, like I sort of jokingly, but I, I really meant what I said, we have, I have at least, a deep habit to not want to illuminate all this stuff around identity. Because one of my initial responses is, it's really complex. And it really helps me have that sort of superficial relaxation of being oblivious. You know, sort of just, and you can do that when you're living a relatively privileged life. You know, that option is available for me to sort of, you know, kind of be on cultural cruise control where I don't want to be, I want to be oblivious. I don't really want to feel into illuminate how identity works, how view works, because it gets really complex. And this is generally true with the Path of Awakening Mindfulness practice. Initially, you might get some calm, you know, your first class, whatever, first half a year doing the practice, get a little taste of more tranquility in your life. But if you're really dedicated, if you really stick with it, then you're going to start seeing a lot more than what you've ever wanted to see. And you're going to not just see it in your own heart and mind, but you're going to start seeing it in everybody else. You're going to become a sensitive human being. And it's really messy, it's really complex. And then it will trigger wanting to feel safe. Because we're feeling more exposed, then that more primal instinct to feel safe will arise, and so we'll cling to views. So you see this a lot in Buddhist settings, where people start to cling to the view, to the identity of being sensitive, being a Buddhist, being right, being someone who doesn't cling, being somebody, the identity of being somebody who doesn't get attached. And boy, is that stinky, right? It's like, try being around somebody who's identified with not being attached. Because then, what are they dependent on? Not like i this is me, and I'm hopefully less now than before, but then we're really identified with not seeing our attachments. Like, if I have the identity of being a Buddhist who's not attached, then I have to work very hard, unconsciously, to not be aware of my attachments. Because it doesn't fit my view, my identity, of being somebody who thinks identities, fixed identities, are bad. And then that's a trap, obviously. And it just—it really interrupts the awakening or the learning process of basically seeing what we don't want to see. And it's not just, you know, I'm guessing, it's not just white, male, privileged people who have to see what we don't want to see. I think this is the general human adventure of seeing what we don't want to see. But, it, but it's specific you know, how we all unpack, how this unwinding process happens, it's very personal. But the underlying principles are pretty much the same, it seems. And that's kind of what we can talk about today. By sharing our own dharma adventure, spiritual adventures of waking up, we'll see, we'll confirm maybe that they're the underlying principles of feeling in, seeing what we don't want to see around identity, learning how to navigate because it's very easy this is sort of the shadow in spiritual practice when we see the suffering involved with identity we want to take this spiritual shortcut this bypass okay no more identities i don't see race i don't see class i don't see gender don't see anything (laughs) you know and what am i i'm identified with a an idea, we're all one. You see this a lot in spiritual circles. We're all one, it's just one, interdependent, whole. And it's it can be a really beautiful idea. People, artists, spiritual folks, they can talk a a really good talk, tell a really good story, inspiring stories about this. And it does those experiences of unity Of boundarylessness, they do arise in moments. But that's not also—that's not only what arises. We also have moments where it feels like we're really different, really strong division, really like can't connect with another person. Right? That's also true and real. Is there space in our practice for both of those so-called extremes, both the sort of complexity of our human relationships around power, around, you know, all these differences that we inhabit. Can we say yes to that, not need to be afraid of that, not need to think of that as not being spiritual, and still in moments have experiences of wholeness and unity and the release, so that we're seeing that these are real but not the whole truth. Identities are real, but not the whole truth. Experiences of peace and unity and release are real, but not the whole truth. They actually need each other. It's like touching into moments of peace and release and non-identification, Really trains are heart to be unafraid in the complexity of identities, right? We really can trust that. Otherwise, this is completely unworkable. And we do what I was sort of saying is typical for the way I'm conditioned, which is to want to pretend that i am done my work, or something like that, you know, that I don't have to deal with that, because I know... I know I've learned on this sort of superficial level attachment bad right so I'm identified not with the experience of non-attachment but with the idea of non-attachment or whatever word you know sort of fits being good I'm a good person I'm not a bad person you know I like people I care about people so we can be identified with that but that's not the same as actually caring because caring about people means We're not afraid to show up in the complexity and in the division and in the woundedness that we all express in different ways in different amounts because of our cultural location and how that's all sort of been for us, each of us. There's an activist, poet... Maybe some of you know Muriel Rukeyser, from lived in from 1913 to 1980, and uh, one of the early feminists and social justice folks, and about wrote poems uh, in part about how uh, you know the sort of labor movement and how some of their early labor scenes were so dangerous. But one of the famous lines from Muriel is. The universe is made up of stories, not atoms. And it's true, like, we tend to be identified with materialist view. So identified, we don't think of it as a view. Like, we're living in this sort of whatever our high school science picture that was painted, you know, like, there are a bunch of, everything gets broken down to atoms, it's just, but actually our world is what we're experiencing right now and when we really honor our subjective experience right now it's one story after another and sometimes when we're in relationship with other people we're co-creating co-telling those stories and then when we're by ourselves you know we're repeating stories right I mean, this is sort of an awakening moment when we realize the reality of that inner dialogue or inner narration. So, maybe some of you haven't acknowledged truthfully that is our predominant experience as human beings, is hearing ourselves talk to ourselves, to use sort of normal language. That's mostly our experience as a human being. And even when we're interacting with each other, we're mostly telling ourselves a story about what's happening as I'm having, you know, lunch with my partner or you know, hanging out with Shelley or whatever. We're still mostly in our stories, and those stories are organized around identity. Meaning our stories, the relevant aspect of our stories is what is it saying about me? And what is it saying about, what is my story saying about me, implying about me? And what is my story implying about you, collectively or individually? Right? Isn't that actually why our stories are so captivating? Is they have something to say about me and you. And really, to be frank, what my stories say about you are really about me too. <laughs> right? Because it's just that contrast. You're better than me. Better than you. You have a sweater that I like. You know, what's important isn't your sweater, but that I like it, or something like that. Self is involved. Self is behind that fixed view of self, is behind most of that narration. And this is kind of points to what the Buddha noticed when he studied his own mind that these stories, this inner dialogue or what we could just generally call mental activity, it has sort of um, a purpose that can be uncovered and it's got entangled with survival. The inner story has gotten entangled with this very impersonal force of survival, of the replication of the genetic code. right? So, this, so there's a fear, there's something about how that inner dialogue identity gets, can get entangled with a sense of wanting safety for a perceived sense of self. As if there's a somebody, something that's dependent on having an identity. Think about when we were teenagers, I mean at different times for different folks, but you know, there was a time between being a child and being an adult, where we were, most of us, scrambling to figure out who we are. Like, coming up with a handful of palatable stories that when we repeat them, and when our friends repeat them back to us, feel like we belong, that were safe that at least I know who I am. Right? And some of those stories, you know, from some perspective, we might consider like that wasn't a very healthy story, but at least it worked well enough, that story about me. You know, like I'm fundamentally broken. But at least I know who I am. I may, you know, be fundamentally broken, but at least I know who I am. So then when doubt arises, like, who are you? He said, well, I'm fundamentally broken. Just like we could say, I'm a Buddhist. When and I were at a retreat with Ajahn Sumedho, one of our important teachers, and he uh, would say, and just laugh in this really wonderful way, uh, I'm an unenlightened, suffering human being, practicing to be enlightened. Right? That's an identity probably an identity a lot of us can relate to right now. Like, I'm an unenlightened human being. Anybody want to claim to being perfect? (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) Yeah, thank you, Elizabeth. (laughs) Yeah. But that, but the fixedness around that identity, I'm an unenlightened being who came to this damn workshop in order to become enlightened so I could be free, or whatever, who gets up every morning to sit in order to be free. Or who does this spiritual push up or that spiritual push up or eats greens or, you know, whatever that sort of work to be good in order to become somebody. That's all identity. Now, rejecting it, I'm somebody who doesn't have to do that work, that's just the same kind of fixation, isn't it? I'm the rebel who doesn't do the thing I'm supposed to do, you know, so I eat butter instead of <laughs> olive oil, or I eat, When and I have been having our cholesterol checked recently, so we're kind of into the Mediterranean diet these <laughs> It's like, okay, so what tastes like butter, but isn't butter good for you? <laughs> so, this... Uh, we can't get away with it. This is what was brilliant about the Buddhist teachings. is He not only pointed out the sort of normal identity, but he also saw that rejecting identities is just another identity. So the way forward, and this is what I was saying a few minutes ago about embracing the complexity of our world, of our lives, of our stories, of our identities of our roles that we play, of our cultural locations. But we have to embrace that. We have to like get comfortable because there's no way out of our karmic, like in Buddhist language, our karmic situation. We are inhabiting this location that we're inhabiting. And not liking, not wanting to inhabit it, it's totally understandable at times, but identifying with the one who doesn't like it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help you, and it doesn't help the wider world. What seems to help is to relax into the truth of the moment, the embodied truth of the moment, and not presume that the uncomfortable feelings that we have when we do relax, that those are unsafe. The instinct will be, I don't want to feel this discomfort, but the the understanding the Buddha uncovered was running from that discomfort is what causes suffering. The cause of suffering is not wanting to embrace the complexity of this world of identity, just to kind of make it specific to this workshop. So one of the things we're here to do, and I'll stop talking in just a moment, take a few questions before we move on to the next phase. But... uh, is really learning together about, like, how are we going to learn to be comfortable in this world of identity so that we can pragmatically figure out, each of us in our specific dance, how not to contribute to our own and others' suffering. Because this is one of the reasons we want to reject identity, is we see people using, sometimes that person's ourself, We see people using identity in ways that cause conflict. But that doesn't mean identity can be rejected. right? And this is like that throwing the baby out with the bathwater kind of thing. So the, the, the more pragmatic, useful question, I think, is what would be a good way... How might identity be helpful right now? What identity used in what way? What identities used in what ways? might actually help me and you and everybody else get along with less suffering? How can we use identity skillfully? Because I can really imagine, and that's where we're going in a few minutes, it's like we thought we'd start out today really digging in like how it's used skillfully instead of how it's used unskillfully, to really see that. There's a great line from one of Ajahn Tanisaro's teachers, a Thai uh, forest meditation teacher, Buddhist monk, that uh, the line is something like, mountains are only heavy if you try to lift them. Identities are only a problem if we mistakenly think that they're me or mine. As opposed to, like, when we're... Engaging a community or another person when we're doing that dance of relating, right? We relate we through stories and we're co authoring them. I mean, ideally, it's not very satisfying to be in a relationship when the other person isn't allowing you to co author, isn't interested in that sort of telling a story together. And they just want us to listen. I mean, we can do that for a while, of course let someone vent or whatever. But really what we're doing, even how we listen, is co-authoring the story. Listening with kindness, listening with deep understanding really changes how they're telling their story as opposed to not really being there or blocking their story with our story. They don't know what they're talking about. That's my story. You know, and I'm identified with that, like being the one who knows, that they don't know what they're talking about. But they're a child, and so I'm going to humor them, or something like that. So I'll leave it here. We have a few minutes before we move on to the next um, kind of open discussion, but just some responses to what I've said. Questions, of course, also appropriate. Anything come to mind? Always oh, good to say your name, and we are recording today, just so you know, and uh, if that's a problem we can shut that off if you want to share without it being recorded. But any response or any questions about what I've said? Yeah, please. Okay, let's see, I'm
1: going to try to put this in words as best I can. Uh, so... I'm, I'm trying to uh, understand what you mean, well, first first by identity itself, because it seems like uh, you're saying that there's identity that we are attached to, and identity that we're not attached. So, I'm trying to understand what that would even mean, identity that we're not attached to. Uh, so yeah, I guess that's one question. Um, the other one would be, well, what do you mean by um, use identity? The question was, well, what was it? How can we, how can we use identity more civilly? So I, I'm wondering what also would that mean to use
0: identity? Yeah. You no really good questions. And I think of it almost like putting on a lens, like just to use this example, even though it may not be that relevant, but you know, the fact that I'm sitting here, right, so that I can use that identity, I'm in this role of being a teacher, and then that might illuminate, help me understand, like, what's happening between us right now, or age difference. Right, the identity around age difference, or whatever any other number of ways. Or you might have asked the question in a provocative way that triggered some of my defensiveness, and sense of not being good enough. And then I can use that lens, oh, this is that identity of not feeling good enough. And because I've illuminated it, it really can affect, help me respond in a way that doesn't you know, make things more confusing, right? So, using when we're not attached to identity, then we can use the identity of around gender, around class, around age, around status or power, or any way that we might have identity to help us see more clearly what we might not otherwise see. So, what's not being seen? Because the whole, the basic premise from the Buddhist teachings is Skillfulness depends on being intimate, being embodied, being being open to what's actually moving. We can't really be skillful if we're not connected. So we use use the lens of identity to see what we might not otherwise be seeing, so that then our response in the moment is really coming out of being more connected instead of less connected. Does that kind of get at what you were asking?
1: So are you saying... Let me see if I can paraphrase. Are you saying that we are we already are using that lens of
0: identity, right? So, um, but are we using it in the service of being intimate, or are we using it in the service of protecting the sense of an egoic me that is afraid, fundamentally afraid, fundamentally wanting solid ground, right? That, that's like that. Yeah, and it's really about this path, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm on a path, I'm, I can't always manifest it with integrity, but I'm on this path to embrace complexity and exposure, because the other way hasn't worked for me, right? So I'm, I'm training my heart not to orient around a false sense of safety by clinging to an identity, rather I'm using identities to move more into this place of complexity and insecurity, but strangely more stable there. Yeah.
1: So, let me see if I can get this a little bit more clear, Um, not to take too much time, but um, as I understand it, it's sort of like um, the well, I guess the, the easiest way for me to, to think about that is just that it's the, I, the identity is already there whether we like it or not. So, um, so we have to use what we have, and the only way to see clearly is to to use what we have, which is I think,
0: yeah. The identity. Yeah. And not to assume that the identity that's active and in the forefront is the most useful identity in this moment. So to ask, well, what identity is in the forefront, is active, is that a helpful lens right now? Or by bringing this other identity into the moment, that will go to the periphery, and then maybe we'll see more what we need to see, feel more what we need to feel with this other identity. Because it isn't just, we have lots of identities we can inhabit.
1: So it could be thought of as a perspective or as a role or
0: something like that as well. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Thanks, James. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.